Hello, and welcome to the GSV Ventures podcast, where we will be discussing the age of digital learning that has been kickstarted by the 1.6 billion learners forced online by the coronavirus pandemic. As the world transitions from BC before coronavirus to AD after disease, an enormous catalyst has accelerated the opportunity of the future to today. Join industry leaders, educators, government officials, entrepreneurs, and investors as we explore the AD world. This episode is a conversation between Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida and chairman of the Foundation for Excellence in Education, and Deborah Quazzo, partner at GSV Ventures. Obviously, incredibly successful two-term Florida governor. You are education first in your in your work as governor in Florida, um, and it's an area that you re- remain, you know, very mission and passion driven around uh, with Excel and Ed and other things that you do. I I thought can we, let's start with the pandemic because uh, I'd like to kind of get your 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 thinking, your comment on that, um, and the the pandemic driven experiment with remote learning. Uh, today, the Wall Street Journal had a headline that said some school districts are planning to end the you know the year early, calling remote learning too tough. Um, and then we had 40% of district leaders were polled, and they said they could not support in-home learning even for a day. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Is this a pass or a fail? What, what have we learned? How do we improve this? Um, you know, what were your lessons from, from Florida? Well, um, thanks for having me, Deborah. Um, I hope you're recovering from your injury. I um, it's, uh, the pandemic is a game changer, and a lot of times when you have a crisis like this, it creates the opportunity to make more transformational change, and we'll see how that plays out. Uh, monopolies in general are, are the most, most resistant to that kind of change, but um, the record is mixed for sure. You have 13,000 school districts. Some of them, based on a political decision, said if we can't provide access to um, learning via the internet, uh, we're not going to to everyone. We're not going to provide it to anyone. Others couldn't do it technically. You know, they just they just weren't prepared. They didn't do the training necessary, and others flourished and did really well. Um, and so I, I would start by saying that all school districts need to learn this as uh, the lessons learned of success and and failure and improve because distance learning is going to be part of the strategy to open up the schools. If, if we're going to socially distance in classrooms and people are talking about 10 feet between desks, I mean, you think about middle school with 10 feet difference, you're going to have to have a split arrangement where maybe Mondays and Wednesdays uh, kids come to school and Tuesdays and Thursdays a separate cadre of kids come to school. And on Friday, there's online learning. There's going to be lots of different approaches. All of them are going to include online learning. And I think parents having gone through this experience, most of which has been pretty traumatic, um, are going to want to have a, a better uh, sense of how, this, how they can help their children learn. Um, and so the opportunity would be there's all sorts of, you know, the last panel is the answer in so many ways to listen to them talk about things. There's huge opportunities for us to get this right. And the final thing I'd say is, uh, there will be a huge outcry already started that we need to bail out the schools. We need to bail out education budgets. There will be shortfalls and there's and the federal government has already provided a pretty healthy slug of money. I would argue for making the first dollar spent be the ones that deal with this issue rather than to backfill 
deficits, use the money to reform, to fix the things that will make learning, um, you know, move to a 21st century model. And so we'll see. I mean, XLNet is working hard to encourage commissioners of education and governors to be bigger and bolder at this time rather than play defense. And um, we're hopeful that many states will do that. So, Jeff, I think, and further, I think, to that, I mean, you know, remote learning is a term everyone's using, and it's interesting to me, it's kind of code for a couple things. One is it's home learning. So what what this these um, successes and failures have underscored is that we are, um, for, for the preponderance of low-income students that don't have devices and don't have bandwidth at home, they're missing the opportunity to learn at home. It's not just, it's not really, remote's really almost the wrong word, because, you know, home or a different place than school is where most students and children spend their days. And so have you been, I mean, what do you think about how we, um, you know, from a government, from whether it's federal government, state government, you know, local, how do we solve what is clearly an issue that our students are not just ill-equipped to de- to move into a remote learning environment, but on a day-to-day basis, low-income students are not given, getting the same opportunity to learn digitally anyway, if digital is the future, which I, you know, I believe it is, um, at home. So yeah, what do you I, think about, yeah. Well, first, I, I think we should get the the right data points. Uh, a majority of people in this country can access learning from the home. A majority of low-income uh, students, but there is a gap, without a doubt. Uh, we spend billions of dollars in E-rate. We spend billions of dollars in technology budgets. A lot of it is vendor-driven. No disrespect to the large ed tech companies that go, traipse around the country selling stuff, software and, and equipment. Uh, maybe we should create a national strategy that's implemented locally uh, to deal with this one pressing problem that once we get fixed, uh, could be a long-term investment of great benefit. And so I I would argue that if there is to be an infrastructure fund, this should be the highest priority, that we ought to reallocate monies, whether it's in the E-rate program, if that's possible to do, or other means to be able to, to deal with this digital divide. It's been talked about now for how long? 15, 20 years. Yep. And, and now's the chance, I think, the opportunity to, to fix it. And then the question is, are teachers, they need to be trained to teach in, in, this, uh, in this new format. And parents need to be totally engaged to be able to enhance the learning. Deborah, I'd add one other thought, and that is maybe we get to the point where the learning is flipped, where the teacher actually, um, the homework is what's done in the classroom and the and the, um, uh, the learning is done at home, and the teacher then can be a coach for the students to make sure that they've actually mas- mastered the material. Um, that would be, you could do that if you, if you eliminated the digital divide. I, I think that's right. I mean, you even see with Khan Academy, in fact, that's what, you know, saw a lot, in a lot of the um, usage with Khan Academy early on was, it, you know, both teachers learning at home and students learning at home, and then, yeah, no, I, I because I also think there's a question of if we're not equipped to do remote learning in K-12, and, and one of the earlier panels talked about uh, the, the incredible demand for online solutions for working adults. Um, so if we're not equipping you know, K-12 students to be online you know, digital learners, then we're, we're probably not equipping them for the modern workforce. And that, you know, that seems to be a, a, an issue of global competitiveness. Uh, you know, I don't know what you think about that. But. Yeah. All I can tell you is uh, the after action report will be full of phenomenally great examples. Miami-Dade County, my home, my home school district, the fourth largest in the United States. 
I think everybody here is learning remotely and it's been effective and they trained for it. Uh, and they, they made it a high priority prior to the virus to make this part of the education experience. And then Fairfax County, the IT head of the IT department just got fired because they couldn't deliver. I mean, literally, and Fairfax spends a lot more than Miami-Dade per student. So uh, I, I just would argue that we need to take the best practices and apply them. Uh, and teacher development needs to shift to, towards this area as well, because teachers are overwhelmed. I mean, it's a, this is an extraordinarily difficult challenge, and, and they need to be, they need, they need backup. Yep. Well, I think, the, I think one of the silver linings here is there's also been an incredible groundswell of appreciation for great teachers um, <laughs> from all the parents who are now at home trying to, um, fortunately my children are too old for that. So I've just had to watch all my, uh, my partners um, work through with their young, with their younger yeah, children. I, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've heard that fifth grade math is really hard. <laughs> But I do, I do hope that also one of the silver linings here is that there is a is a groundswell of appreciation for teacher, you know, the great teachers out there working, um, their their themselves to death to try to you know do YouTube you know, to engage students in the, in this new environment. But I do it, it, your your comment on Miami Dade, you know, leads me to kind of a question on general leadership and leadership in a crisis. I think that you know Miami Dade's had you know, arguably terrific, long-standing, strong leadership of its school system. Um, and I, so I just, what do you think about um, the role of leadership? Can we, how, and I guess the other comment I would make is that you can actually, there was some, I was reading statistics yesterday on China and their Ministry of Education basically launched 22 online course platforms during, during the pandemic, which had supported 24,000 courses. So they basically sent a national, um, and I know that we're, we're, uh, you know, adamantly against national, you know, national uh, control of education for a whole, you know, variety of good reasons. But how do we scale district, you know, great leadership at the district level into a national, um, a national phenomenon like what, what they've seen in China, um, which were, were arguably their pandemic move to online learning was very successful. Um, anyway, just love to get your, your, your thinking on, on well, that. Leadership matters on good days. It really matters during pandemics and disasters and crises. And um, the, first, the first type, the kind of leadership we need now is the servant leadership. It's humble, it's fact-based, it's, it's telling people the truth, but giving them hope. It's connecting with them on a human level, showing empathy. And this is a very dangerous, difficult time. State budgets, uh, the pension obligations are, are now gonna become um, a bigger part of the of the budget because we've had shortfalls and that'll hurt that'll hurt the here and now spending. Uh, pension obligations remain the same. Uh, Catholic private university private schools that provide so much support. Ten percent of all students go to private schools. Well, if people have lost their income, they're probably not going to be as uh, anxious to spend money on private tuition. Uh, the corporate tax scholarship in Florida uh, works when you have corporate taxes. To credit. If there's no corporate taxes, you'll see a reduction in what the largest uh, school choice program, private school choice program in the country. So in moments like this, you want to be, you want to tell people the truth. You want to give them um, hope. You want to connect with them in an empathetic way, and then take advantage of the challenge to turn it into a huge opportunity. And, and so that's, that's uh, Carvalho here in Miami-Dade, I think is a great example of that. And many others are as well. None of this is going to change 
unless parents and community leaders say enough of this. Uh, without, without parental engagement, um, government-run monopolies just don't go quietly in the night. I know that's politically incorrect, and I apologize for those that may not sense that that's uh, the way you're supposed to be talking these days, but they don't. They don't change unless there is pressure, and without parent involvement, I don't see that happening naturally. Um, in the private sector and in the philanthropic world, uh, in the not-for-profit world, change happens quicker because there's, a, there's an imperative to make things uh, better. If you don't, you may not survive. Governments are the last entities that uh, will make that change, and, and people will have to demand it. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, you've, you've obviously spent um, significant energy and, and um, to the K-12 system, but, but you know, we're going to see um, coming out of this, I think there are also, I mean, obviously there's going to be enormous pressure, and some of the earlier panels talked about, it, I mean, incredible pressure on the higher education system, and we've already got the issue of declining enrollments and economic um, stresses, and I think we will, we're already beginning to see state budget wax at the um at, at, at higher ed you know higher ed allocations so what do you what do you think about and then you, know, you guys have been very involved in the dual enrollment dual enrollment's been a big issue for you all which i believe is one of those important linking bridges between k-12 and higher ed so any reflections on what you think coming out of the pandemic um you know will be potentially positive catalysts in higher education and and um, this is this is a you know the walls were closing in on public universities and private um, except for the the fanciest ones yep. prior to the uh, pandemic, and this will only accelerate it. So um, K twelve will get a lot of its money back, if not all. We'll see how the Congress appropriates money. Higher ed won't, um, and so you have rising student debt, recourse debt on the backs of students. Uh, you can't continue to raise tuition. And so the, the schools that educate 90% of all the students, uh, most of whom are not 19-year-olds, most of whom are right. either going back to, to get a degree of relevance for their lives or they're trying to complete a degree, um, that's, that's where the, the, the danger is. And I think there needs to be a lot of philanthropy and a lot of state support for these universities, but along with it, there should be reforms. We should not call a four-year degree four years unless a student has the capability of actually graduating in four years. And in many places, they can't do that. Online learning is another place where there's all sorts of innovations taking place in the university space, and that, that should continue to accelerate. There are places in the United States so that prohibit that. States with large number of students that aspire to a better life, California being one of them, New York, where the barriers of entry, sadly to say, I think Illinois may be on that list, um, where the, the barriers of entry of innovation are, 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 um, are there and they're, they're real. So hopefully out of this, there will be continued support through state governments and federal government, of course, but, but I think along with that, there should be significant reforms. It, and then as it relates to dual enrollment, of course we should be expanding these things. 25% of all juniors are capable of taking college level work and only three or 4% do. Who's fooling who here? I mean, this, this customizing the learning experience to make sure kids that are struggling aren't just pushed along and kids that could learn at a faster rate aren't held back is gotta be the great imperative for K-12 education and higher education going forward. 
Well, and it also pulls some of the high, to your point, since, you know, the K-12 system is less economically vulnerable, arguably, it pulls some of that, you know, some of that economics into the high school. That's that right. Might have been spent in, in higher ed, which I think is also really important. Um, let me ask you a question about political will. Uh, you know, I think that all of us, or at least at least I'll speak for myself, um, are pretty ena- enamored with Dr. Fauci. Um, we, uh, you know, you we hang Brad Pitt? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brad Pitt and Dr. Fauci, um, the Brad Pitt of, of healthcare. He, um, you know, we hang on every word. His he's admired and 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 speaks the truth. Um, and the and certainly the COVID the pandemic has been you know a, a tragedy on, on a thousand different levels. But the reality is, you know, we still have despite rising graduation rates high school graduation rates here in Chicago, we've seen a precipitous increase um, in graduation. We still have, a mil- you know, 1.2 million students still drop out of high school every year, which is just a, you know, a stunning number when you, you know, you, you correlate that to, to health, to healthcare issues, whether it's COVID or anything else. Um, and when do you think we'll have the political will to, uh, for, for the country, the culture, the you know, federal government, the, the whatever, um, to, to take these issues as seriously um, as if they were a human health issue? Because they absolutely are. So I'm just curious when you think, when you think that, will, and, and then also comment on this presidential race, not necessarily the final race, but I mean, even coming up to this race, I never felt that there was an adequate discussion of education as an issue, except for the free college thing. Um, yeah, I don't even think thing. any of the debates in education question came up in the Democratic nope. debates. And, and in 16, a similar kind of situation. Part of that is the dichotomy that K-12 education, at least, is locally administered. Policies are created at the state level. The federal government plays a supportive when they're doing it right. And, you know, they're marginal at best. I mean, 10% of the funding comes from the federal government. So um, I think part of this will be we have to change the political environment where um, taking risks is re- are rewarded again. We're reaching out across the aisle is rewarded. I mean, every big initiative that I got to do uh, or tried to do uh, the first impulse was, let me find a Democrat that doesn't look like me to be my, my, my partner in this. Now, if you do that, and I, I see it on you know, my Twitter feed, when you, when you like, advocate something like that, you're a, a rhino if you're a Republican. I don't know what you are if, if you're a Democrat that would dare do it, because very few do. Right. Uh, so there needs to be, people can decide if, if, if they want to change the political culture, because it's, it's who we are. Um, if they want to change it, then they reward politicians that are trying to advance the cause of reform in a more uh, bipartisan way. And education would be a great place to do it. I'm not, um, I'm a, I, I believe the United States is best when we're a bottom-up country. So when, you know, China does something great, that's fine. That's, that's, that's the Chinese way. America at its best, there's someone in a garage right now that is going to do something that he won't be or she won't be able to explain to me because it'll be way over my head, but it's gonna change the world. And it's more likely to happen in this environment than it would if everybody was content. So I'm an optimist about how we change this, but our political culture is, is us. It's not some extraneous thing. It's, we're, it's a circus mirror, but it's a mirror of who we are. And if we're gonna be vulgar, and if we're gonna attack each other, and if we're going to um, not try to solve problems, but push people, 
people down to look, make ourselves look better. If that's, if that's who we are, then we shouldn't be surprised we have a political system that, that mirrors that. Perfect. Wonderful. Wonderful comment. I think that's actually a perfect way we're ending on the nose. That is, um, if you have any last sort of optimism coming out into the AD, it's like we we like to call it the AD world after disease, um, having gone from BC uh, before Corona. Um, Any, any last, any last thoughts? You know what? Just tell mom, she's got a beautiful garden. <laughs> Thank you, um, Jeb. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and I, uh, I'm with you on the political point, And I hope we can all join together and um, and find a Dr. Fauci for education and uh, and get get those issues to the forefront of everybody's mind. Um, thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. This conversation is brought to you by the 2020 ASU GSV Summit, September 29th through October 1st at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego, California. The ASU GSV Summit wishes to thank our sponsor partners, including American Student Assistance, Pearson, and New Oriental Education and Technology Group. Please visit asugsvsummit.com for more information.